Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran, joined by Katrina Blowers, and it is Friday the 20th of May, which means, what an auspicious day, it means one more sleep until Australia decides who will lead this country, Katrina. I know, and if you are well and truly fed up with all the campaigning that's been going on, we are also so very fortunate to live in the country that we live in where we have the right and the privilege to vote. So either way, it is an auspicious day, as you say. The latest leaked Liberal Party polling shows about a quarter of us still don't know who we'll vote for, like one of our briefing listeners, Mel. I still haven't decided who I'm going to vote for, and I know it's only kind of a few days out from the election, but I think I'm going to have to go through each party's policies um, without the politicians kind of yelling at each other in press conferences. Oh, that's a great way of approaching things, Mel. Go back through the policies, see what you like, vote for the person in your electorate that's going to make them come true. On today's show, we're going to look back at the campaign, but we're also going to look forward to tomorrow. As always, we're going to hear from you, our briefing listeners, on the moments that either changed your vote or lost it forever. I've really hated that neither of the major parties have really appealed to voters under 30 and the climate change policies of both parties don't really do anything for me. I'm 30 years old. I'm probably going to live on this planet for another 50 years. So, yeah, I would love to to see that and it's probably why I'll end up voting for the Greens. That's our listener, Jack, there. So your verdict on the election, plus we'll chat to an electoral analyst on where those key seats are that will decide who wins government and could help you decide who to vote for. That's coming up soon, but first up, today's headlines. Well, as Australians prepare to head to the polling booths tomorrow, we have a fresh opinion poll and it shows the race is tightening. Dum, dum, dum. Labor is leading the coalition 53 to 47%. This is on a two-party preferred basis. And that's according to the latest Ipsos poll, which was commissioned by nine newspapers. Yes, but if you do take a deeper dive into the figures, it, it does look like good news for Labor, but the party's primary vote has fallen two points to 36%, shrinking Labor's primary vote lead by five points since the last poll was taken 12 days ago. Yeah, while that's happened, the coalition's primary vote has jumped three points from 32 to 35%. So they're really neck and neck, 36%, 35% primary vote. Mm. That margin just keeps narrowing. Look, if that continues, we could potentially see a hung parliament, possibly a coalition victory, even though all of the polls um, of late have been pointing towards a Labor victory. Really is anyone's game at this point. Yeah, so Labor has also released its policy costings. They're spending more than the coalition, who've budgeted for $2.3 billion over the next four years. The modest $7.4 billion difference between the two budgets is made up of key investments in childcare, investments in training and education and investments in cleaner and cheaper energy. That was the Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. Meanwhile, the actual Treasurer... I suspect he'd be pretty happy about the latest unemployment figures that are out. A 44-year low of 3.9%. To see our unemployment rate today have a three in front of it is something that every Australian can be proud of. 
That's Josh Frydenberg there. We were having a chat, Jan, about what these unemployment figures are actually comprised of because the Bureau of Stats says, you know what, they might look good, but there's actually um, unemployment has dipped because the total number of people in the workforce has declined. So it might look good as a headline, but there's fewer people in the workforce and that's why the unemployment figures are lower. It's super confusing. The woman who was the 16-year-old babysitter when Sydney mum Lynette Dawson disappeared has told the court the man on trial for her murder, Chris Dawson, groomed her when she was a child and then turned her into his sex slave. So the woman is known as JC. Um, she later married Chris Dawson, but she told the court that in the days after the alleged murder was meant to take place, Chris told her, quote-unquote, Lynn's gone, she's not coming back. Yeah, she testified he then moved her into the family home and from that first night and onwards, she slept in the marital bed. Yeah, so this is a case that we said on yesterday's show has come about because of the very hugely popular Teacher's Pet podcast. Chris Dawson is accused of murdering his wife, Lynette Dawson, in January of 1982 and of disposing her body um, before making a missing persons report a month later. Voluntary euthanasia is now legal in New South Wales, the last state in Australia to pass the laws. There has been an inspiring grassroots campaign uh, built on the stories of people who have had horrible and cruel end-of-life experiences who want a compassionate uh, option at the end of their life that this legislation will now provide. That was New South Wales Independent MP and Chief Co-Sponsor of the Bill, Alex Greenwich, speaking there. Now, this bill has has some caveats, um, so certainly not available to um, just anyone that wants to take it up. It allows people to end their own life only if they are aged uh, over 18, uh, they have a terminal illness with death expected within six months or 12 months for neurological conditions. And there are other caveats there too, Kat. Yeah, they uh, also must have the capacity to make the decision to go ahead voluntarily without duress. And that application would be assessed by two medical practitioners. So it's not going to be super easy. Um, the laws will come into force within 18 months. Queensland was actually the most recent state in Australia to have passed assisted dying laws. That bill passed Parliament last year. A move in the right direction, I think, as long as it's, you know, not too difficult for people to actually go ahead and utilise these laws. Yeah, well, it's really just New South Wales catching up with the rest of the country. Um, all of the states, not the territories, um, but all of the states do have similar laws, although uh, in some of them, even though the laws have passed, they haven't actually come into effect yet. But, you know, there does seem to be a standard that's now being applied to uh, the whole country when it comes to assisted dying. And a world record has been broken at the Australian Swimming Championships. Honestly, what would we do without the commentators just <laughs> geeing everybody up, really getting so in there with exciting. the energy? Good on him. Um, he has set a new time to beat for the men's 200-metre breaststroke, 0.17 seconds faster than the previous one. 
Yeah, he's now the only Australian man to hold a current long course world record. Uh, Kaylee McEwen owns the 100 metre backstroke world record, while the Aussie women's team claimed the four by 100 metre freestyle relay record in Tokyo. We were talking on the podcast yesterday about pop star turned, well, I guess he was always a swimmer, but he's rekindled his swimming career, Cody Simpson. So the update is that it looks like he might have to wait a little bit longer now to make his debut for the Dolphins at the Budapest World Championships. That's because the guy whose spot he was going to take, uh, the Olympic gold medalist Kyle Chalmers, Kyle was going to have a bit of a rest, but yesterday he was like, mm, maybe I will, nah. maybe I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so that might mean that Cody misses out on that spot. He's qualified for the Commonwealth Games. They're yet to select that team. So Cody Simpson might still, you know, be able to represent his country for that. But his big dream, of course, is to be in the 2024 Olympics. Uh, so, you know, who knows what's going to happen there, whether he's dirty at Kyle. But, you know, it's Kyle's spot. So he kind of, um, he has he has dibs on that. But I do feel for yeah. Cody. I do wonder if Kyle's copped a very um, stern, angry face emoji text message from Cody Simpson. <laughs> Come on, mate. It's his prerogative, his spot. All right, let's chat election more specifically. Let's chat seats. That's coming up next. It's often something that's completely unexpected that goes down as a key moment in an election campaign. I don't know if you remember back in 2004, Katrina, there was that super awkward and very macho handshake between then Labor leader Mark Latham and John Howard that everyone said was the beginning of Mark Latham's downfall. Do you, do you remember that handshake? I really do, because up until then, everyone thought Mark Latham would have a real shot at becoming the PM and ousting John Howard. And it was actually on the eve of the election when they passed each other in a corridor at a radio station. And Mark Latham grabbed John Howard's hand, pulled him towards him and kind of loomed over the top of him and did this super intense eye contact. And it really turned a ton of voters off Mark Latham for good. Yeah, if you haven't seen that footage, I just recommend you Google it and it'll come up just Mark Latham, John Howard handshake so you guys know what we're talking about. But on this um, particular campaign, there hasn't been any sort of super dramatic moments. I mean, there's been some gaffes early on with Albanese. He also got COVID. That was a thing. He was out in ISO in his house for seven days. Do you have any kind of recollections of the campaign that stand out for you? Yeah, for me, it's been really great, but also disheartening to see transgender issues discussed so openly in an election campaign for the first time. Although that, as I said, has been negative as well as positive. Uh, of course, the, this week we've had the PM crash tackling a kid. Not really, but that's what it looked like on the soccer field. And it hasn't actually been till the last week that we've seen the emergence of some real policies with both sides releasing initiatives to make it more affordable for young people to buy homes. Yeah, I mean, we also asked you guys what stood out for you and a bunch of you responded, so thank you so much for doing that. Um, there was also the moment where the Prime Minister said that he was blessed that he and Jenny didn't have children with disabilities. That one really hit home for one of our listeners, Catherine. Have a listen. 
I work in health, specifically with many children in rural New South Wales who receive services via the NDIS and even have members of my own family who are disabled. To hear the current PM make such harsh comments about a vulnerable population makes me feel that he doesn't have the compassion to lead the nation. Yeah, so thank you, Catherine, for that comment. Another of our listeners, David, thinks the PM has had cut through. I'm going to be voting for the LNP at the upcoming election. I just don't feel like Labor have got the strength or the leadership to make a real improvement to their country. Their budget seems to be completely unbalanced uh, with no real idea of how they're going to account for all of the promises and pledges that they're making. While Scott Morrison maybe isn't the best, I think he's the best option that we have at the minute. That was David there. Clearly he's made up his mind about who he's going to vote for. And the thing with this election is, Katrina, it's sort of been sold as a presidential-style election where you're voting for two people and, Mm. you know, one of them is a loose unit with the economy, as Scott Morrison has said about Albanese, and the other one you just can't trust, as Albanese has said about Scott Morrison. But really, this election is not about personalities at all. It's about the seats and how many seats a party gets that will eventually decide who ends up being Prime Minister. So that is what we're going to focus on for the rest of the briefing. And we're going to do that with Ben Rowie, who is an election analyst, lives and breathes this stuff. Um, He runs the Tally Room, which is a website that is dedicated to all things Australian election. And he joins us now. So, Ben, yesterday we talked all about the ins and outs of voting and today we want to focus on seats. We keep hearing that marginal seats will be what decides the election. Fill us in. What is a marginal seat? It's basically a seat that is close enough that there's a realistic possibility that it could change hands at the election. Seats that are on really large margins do change sometimes. And of course, there's plenty of seats on really small margins that don't change hands. But usually I go by a rule of thumb about 6%. A seat under 6% is one of the seats that you kind of want to pay attention to that could theoretically change hands. And then you kind of, on top of that, you layer extra information about what else you know about what's happening in that election. So that's a marginal seat. Does that mean that a safe seat is a seat that's got quite a big margin, so you're Mm. not likely to sway that percentage of the population? It's probably going to go to the party that's held it for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So the AEC has a category they called reasonably safe, which is up to 12%, and then they use safe for over 12. But there are elections where you get swings over 12%. In normal elections, small single-digit swings are most common. You do have occasional seats with big swings. And all of this doesn't factor in situations where, like, a new, very strong independent pops up out of nowhere, like Zali Stegall last election. Those ones, you can't really calculate those based on margin because Zali Stegall hadn't run in the previous election. You didn't have any base to calculate how much her vote had increased. And in those scenarios, Mm. seats that look very, very safe can change hands. We hear the phrase bellwether seats being thrown about a bit. Give us a bit of a one-on-one on what that means. Yeah, so a bellwether seat is a seat that goes to the party that forms government every time. So a seat that has a really long history of being won by the government and changing hands at the same time that the government changes hands. Uh, some really famous examples are like Ida Monero and Lindsay that had Uh, stayed with the government for a really long time. But actually, Labor won both of those seats back in 2016, even though they didn't win government. And so they remain really super marginal, but in the end, they now are in the Labor column and Labor's not in government. 
you know what, we might get to a point on election night where it comes down to one or two seats that we're really watching closely to have an outcome, Mm. but they're only in that position because a bunch of other seats landed in a particular spot. So it's never just about one seat. It's about a whole bunch of seats. You know, if only one seat changes hands, then not very much is going to change in this election. If we get to that point where we say that's the seat that matters, it might be the closest seat, but it's kind of sitting on the top of a mountain of other seats that have changed hands or have voted in a particular way to get it to that outcome. Okay. If you're following along with the election, you've got your drinking game, you've got your bingo card, you've mm. got your chips, you've got your mates, you're watching the television. Are there any seats that you should be keeping a particularly close eye on and why? Give us your top three. All right. They're all coalition seats and we're mostly watching to see how well Labor does taking seats off the coalition because Labor needs to pick up at least seven net to um, get a majority government. First one I would watch is Bass. It's a very marginal seat. It's uh, famous for flipping back and forth repeatedly. It's really much not a bellwether because it changes hands much more often than government changes hands. So Bass is one worth watching. The second one I mentioned is Chisholm and it's 0.5%, has a really large Chinese population. And I'm really interested to see how all of the rhetoric around China from the government plays out with those voters because it could go Mm. either way. The third seat I would want to look at is probably North Sydney. Trent Zimmerman, who's the Liberal MP for North Sydney, is definitely a lot more moderate than a lot of his colleagues and has often um, stood apart from his colleagues. He is being challenged by a strong independent, but he's also being challenged by a strong Labor campaign. Labor is also trying to do well in seats that used to be completely out of reach for them that have voters who have a high level of income, a high level of education. They used to be pretty comfortable with the Liberal Party, but they're concerned about climate change, they're socially progressive, and they feel kind of disconnected from the Morrison Liberal government. I think a lot of people who are in those either blue ribbon LNP seats or those safe Labor seats think to themselves, what's the point of my vote? Like, is this election already decided? Is that seat already, you know, going to go a particular way? What would you say to those voters tomorrow? I mean, the first thing I would say is there's there's some truth to that. We have a voting system that means that not everyone's vote matters equally and there are certain kinds of electorates that matter more in terms of like if you're in um, a policy office in a minister's office in Canberra and you're trying to decide what policy direction to take, you pay more attention to what the voters who are swinging in electorates that are marginal, you pay more attention to what they think. If we had a proportional voting system like most sensible, mature democracies in the Western world have, then everyone's vote would count and every electorate would be marginal. You know, maybe not every seat would be marginal, but every electorate would have at least one seat that would be in play. There's a bunch of seats that are in play at this election that weren't in the past, mostly Liberal seats being challenged by independents. So I would say voting still matters. If you vote for a party, they also receive a few dollars from your vote as public funding as well. So that matters as well. And I would say the Senate really does matter. No voter lives in a safe seat for the Senate. Every voter lives in a seat where they can vote for someone who's marginal in the Senate. So that's Ben Rowie, who is an election analyst who runs the tally room. Uh, I thought it was really interesting how he said that our current system means that depending on where you are, your vote might not have as much 
impact as it is if you live in a different seat. So really worth drilling down what seat you're in and that could actually help you make maybe a different choice tomorrow. And I will say every vote does count. I'm a big believer in that, big believer in, you know, democracy. Not all countries around the world have the freedom to vote in the way that we do. So get out there, get your snag, people. Or your halloumi burger. There's a West End, (laughs) which is a very uh, (laughs) left-leaning. They do halloumi burgers. They don't do sausages. And they're bloody delicious. (laughs) I will not have my democracy sausage ridiculed by vegans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is our Monday to Friday show, but... You guys know by now we've got a weekend briefing coming up for you with Jamila Rizvi Jam. Who have you got on the show? Oh my gosh, I am so pumped about this week. I am speaking to Yael Stone, the Australian-born actress who was one of the huge breakout stars of Orange is the New Black, which was my favourite Netflix show for about 100 years. Well, maybe like three. But it was one of my favourites and she was one of my favourite characters. Yael is back in Australia these days and she's doing some incredible stuff in the climate advocacy space. We dig into that as well as some discussion of her allegations Yale made against actor Jeffrey Rush when she testified in his defamation trial. This is one not to miss. Yeah, Yale Stone seems like a bit of a legend. She's chatting with Jam on your weekend briefing. Don't miss that. Uh, in the meantime, that is all from the Monday to Friday team. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Listener.